Well, let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And um, what we're going to do tonight is to look uh, at a number of texts in 1 Corinthians. This is more of a survey than the exposition of a particular text. We're actually going to walk through all of 1 Corinthians, uh, of course, not reading every text and not certainly not diving deep into any particular text, but rather surveying the contents of uh, 1 Corinthians as a letter. And the title for this, um, this is uh, How to Unite a Divided Church. Well, last week when we were looking at Romans 16, as we've gone through this, as we've begun this study in Paul's letters to consider what Paul wanted to uh, instruct, uh, what he wanted to teach the churches, we looked at Romans 16 and we saw Paul's emphasis on congregational unity, that's unity within a local church, but also congregation, uh, congregational unity between congregations within a local area. Within the city of Rome, there were several uh, house churches, and Paul sought to unify all of them. Paul also showed his value for regional unity, as, as we saw in Romans 16, and saw how uh, Paul created um, contacts with other churches, uh, ch the church of Corinth and in that region as well, as they sent their greetings and also uh, added, their, um, uh, added their support for what Paul was saying to the church in Rome. And finally, we saw that Paul uh, promoted universal unity between the people of God in every place, at every time, uh, in so much as that's possible. And that particular way we saw that was that um, Paul was uh, engaged particularly in a, in a uh, mission to help the church in Jerusalem to... to, to get the churches of uh, the Gentiles to provide support to help the church in Jerusalem with their suffering. We're going to see tonight that that's, the, that's also a concern that he has in this letter to Corinth. But this week, one thing that we're going to see in Corinth is that this is a very divided church. We suspect that the church in Rome had some divisions, but they weren't so great that Paul drew attention to those in his letter to the Romans. But when it comes to the church in Corinth, it's very clear, reading through this whole letter, that this church has problems. They're divided. Uh, they're, they're divided into factions, and there are people who are proud, who are exalting themselves against others. And Paul wrote this letter, uh, for among other reasons, to unite this church, to um, draw them back together so that they would not be divided and they would not be against one another, but that they would be mutually supporting one another and united as the body of Christ. How does Paul do that? What we're going to see in this letter is perhaps unintuitive to us. If we think in our day, how would you unite something like a political party or some kind of political movement? You would think in terms of compromise, and you would think in terms of, um, of uh, drawing people together around um, ideas by giving up things that you might like to see if you were fully in control in order to create a coalition of many people. But that's not exactly how Paul seeks to unite the church in Corinth. Rather, he seeks to unite them around a common teaching, a common doctrine, common belief. And he seeks to unite them by promoting church order. I say this is unintuitive because uh, sometimes it's said by people that doctrine divides. But what we see in uh, 1 Corinthians, rather, is that doctrine rightly taught should unite the church. And also, Paul relies on uh, the order of their worship, promoting a right order and a consistent order, and the order in which 
um, the, the, the church is led and governed to support that unity. That's what we're going to see tonight as we survey this text. Well, let me give you a brief history then of the church in Corinth. You can turn over to Acts 18, actually, and um, we'll, we'll see some of this history. Paul planted this church here in Corinth, and if you are trying to visualize where in the world Corinth is, it's a city in uh, modern-day Greece, uh, uh, down in the south of Greece, and so you can just think of it there, not very far from the coast. We read in Acts 18 that after Paul left Athens... He went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife, wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man, Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Now, after, you, after that text, you will see that Paul was eventually, um, uh, that there was eventually persecution that arose against the church. But at the very least, what you can see there is the founding of this church in Corinth, and how Paul spent a full year and a half with them, teaching them and instructing, and how God made it very plain to Paul that he had many people in that city who were his own, who would come to faith in Christ, both among the Jews and among the Gentiles, including, as it were, the, uh, as, as it happened, the ruler of the synagogue, the leader of that synagogue, which is a rather striking thing because many in the synagogue opposed Paul and rejected his teaching. But, so this happened sometime between 49 and 51 A.D., most likely, in Paul's second missionary journey. And Paul writes this letter to them during his third missionary journey, sometime between 52 and 57 A.D., uh, within those years. And so a few years later, and we see that by this time, divisions have arisen. Now, Paul is on a particular mission where he's taking up a collection for the saints in Jerusalem, as I mentioned, he makes mention of this, uh, this is mentioned a lot in Acts, and he makes mention of it in many of his letters, including this letter to the Corinthians. He seeks to strengthen the churches of the Gentiles and also take up this collection to support the church in Jerusalem. He ultimately intends to come again to Corinth to help them, but he has more pressing needs that he needs to deal with in Ephesus because, as he'll say in this letter, God has opened wide a door for him in Ephesus to uh, for, for the preaching and teaching of the gospel. And he doesn't want to leave that uh, at, as of yet. In, actually, in chapter 4, verse 21, he'll say to the Corinthians, um, I don't really just want to see you in passing. I don't want to just have a very short visit that's not meaningful. I want to spend uh, some time with you. Later, he'll say, perhaps spend the winter with you so that he can help to teach them and to further deal with some of these problems. 
But these problems are pressing, and so he writes this letter in order to unite this divided church. Well, what are the problems that the Corinthians face? We go through the letter, we'll see several of these problems, but we can list them. The first one is factionalism or partisanship. We'll see that in chapters 1 through 4. Factionalism or partisanship. That is, all of the Corinthians are organizing themselves under their favorite teacher, whether it's Paul or Peter or Apollos or someone else. They're, they're, they're organizing parties as if they were a political organization. There's also a problem of what we could call ethical apathy and confusion. They don't know how they should live as Christians. They don't know how they should live as a church. Uh, ethical, they, they don't care uh, about some very, very serious sins in their midst. Namely, there's a man who has taken uh, to himself uh, a woman who had been his stepmother, had been his father's wife, and Paul uh, confronts this because even Gentiles, he says, don't do this. Even pagans do not practice this kind of uh, sin. Um, how can you tolerate this within your church? So there's a lack of care, an ethical apathy. But there's also confusion then that arises as Paul will instruct them concerning how they should live if they're married or if they're single, how, how, what, how they should uh, deal with difficult problems that would arise in the pagan world, like do you eat food that was part of a pagan sacrifice? He takes up that issue in chapters 8 through 10. They also have a problem of lawsuits, apparently. Some in the, could you imagine this? Some in the church are suing other Christians, are taking, a, are, are, are taking their case to the courts and suing them because of their disputes. And this also is something that uh, is characteristic of their division, but something that uh, Paul finds um, absolutely unacceptable and confronts in chapter 6. We see that there's evident pride and selfishness in the, in the church as well. Pride and selfishness. And the way this manifests itself is twofold, really. Is there's a, um, there's uh, disputes that arise between the rich and the poor, particularly in the way that they keep the Lord's Supper. They've turned it into a great feast where the rich people are able to come in and they're able to eat whenever they want. Uh, they're eat, and they, they eat these, these great meals. And then the poor and the slaves who are part of the church come in very much later and there's nothing left for them and they feel excluded from the Lord's Supper which they've corrupted to something that's not actually the Lord's Supper, Paul will say. And so there's this pride and selfishness that manifests between the rich and the poor. But there's also that pride and selfishness between those who are mature believers and those who are rather new believers. And we see that particularly in the area of food offered to idols. If someone, you could imagine, someone came out of the pagan world, they had grown up being taught that uh, Zeus was a real god, that uh, these other, um, this pantheon of Greek gods were real, and they've turned from that idolatry to the worship of the one true God, but they have not yet come to understand that those gods aren't real gods at all. And so these are new Christians, baby Christians, you might understand. And you see this problem that arises then in Corinth, where those who are more mature Christians are flaunting their freedom and their knowledge, and they're not pursuing love. Uh, they're, not, they're not loving those who are less mature. We see another problem about disordered worship. Disordered worship. There were many, uh, many of the Corinthians had received great spiritual gifts. Some spoke in tongues, even the tongues of angels. Some had uh, the gift of prophecy and could, uh, could prophesy concerning the future. And yet there wasn't any order to the way that they did this in their worship. And so Paul, is, uh, Paul concerns himself a great deal 
with uh, order within the church and how to deal with all of these spiritual gifts and how to use those in a way that doesn't tear down the church and exalt oneself, but rather builds up the church and edifies it. And then finally, as I mentioned at the outset, there's doctrinal confusion in a number of ways, but the chief example in 1 Corinthians comes in 1 Corinthians 15, where there's doctrinal confusion concerning the resurrection. What should Christians believe about the resurrection? Not just the resurrection of Christ, but also our future resurrection as well at his return. So when we think about this issue, um, we're, we're going to see some of the confusion that arises and how that's uh, not just creating disunity within Corinth, but also starting to separate them from the other churches and what Christians everywhere uh, since the beginning of the uh, proclamation of the gospel have believed. And uh, Paul writes to confront that particular doctrinal error. So these are some of the problems that arise in Corinth. And if you were to go home and this week spend some time reading through this letter, you would encounter all of those and you'd be well prepared then to see some of those things. The text that we'll read then tonight as we work through this survey will mainly support our understanding of how how Paul tries to solve these problems. And then we're going to apply those to our life together as uh, as a church here in Coloma, Michigan in the 21st century. The first solution that Paul offers can be described this way. Common doctrine in belief and practice promotes unity despite the different uh, ways in which we might minister. A common doctrine. What is doctrine? Doctrine is teaching. It's what we teach in the church. And common doctrine promotes unity. Well, let's look at this in relation to the factionalism that arose in Corinth. In the first chapter, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, we read that uh, Paul saying this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be, you be, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Right there from the start, we see that this, uh, the partisanship that existed in Corinth, and how Paul confronts that partisanship by calling the Corinthian Christians to, have, uh, to be unified in their mind and in their judgment. And Paul speaks about his ministry in terms of preaching the gospel, not in terms of baptizing people, and not in terms of gaining a following for himself. Rather, he seeks to promote the singular gospel of Jesus Christ, to share it with the world, and to call people everywhere to believe this one gospel. This is the common doctrine that should promote unity in the midst of the church. And as we read on, we see that Paul comes back again and again to the idea that there is a common, single teaching that should unite all of the churches of Christ in every place. We see this in chapter 4, if you turn over a page, to in chapter 4, verse 17, where Paul explains 
why he had sent Timothy to the Corinthians. Apparently he had sent Timothy to go and minister to them. And in 4.17, he says, That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So you see that Paul explained something he had done earlier. To, he had sent Timothy to instruct the Corinthians. Because there is a single teaching. There is a unified doctrine. There is one, uh, one gospel and there is one uh, instruction uh, that Paul had been delivering, not just to the Corinthians, but to every church in every place. And Paul wanted them to uh, once again be united around that common doctrine. So common doctrine unites. We'll see this again later on. We, we won't, don't need to look at all the texts right now. But you see it in chapter 15, if you recall that great passage where Paul speaks about the resurrection. And he, um, and he begins with just an, uh, an outline of the gospel, reminding the Corinthians of what he had delivered to them at first. The simple gospel that we have believed, that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And that application for all of our life, as he presents that gospel, he shows very clearly in his presentation of it that it's not just Paul's gospel. It's the testimony of Peter. It's the testimony of James. It's the testimony of all the apostles. It's the testimony that every church in every place has received and believed. So we also ought to be people who are united around common doctrine. We'll also see later on that there doesn't mean that we have to agree in every single judgment that we make. I mentioned earlier from, in, in chapter 8 of this text how Paul addresses a situation where some people don't yet, they, they actually don't yet realize that there is only one God. That God the Father and, and, and His Son Jesus Christ that, that we have one God, God our Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, Paul will say. They don't know this. He doesn't say they're not Christians. He treats them as young, immature Christians. So Paul's not saying necessarily that everyone has to be fully instructed and fully understand every single aspect of Christian teaching. But we do need to have a common core doctrine that unifies us all. We need to have a prioritized, uh, uh, we need to prioritize right teaching in the church. Something else that promotes unity in the church. Wise governance promotes a holy unity by removing unbelievers and by resolving disputes between believers. Wise governance. Now this is another area where one might think intuitively in our age that this actually would not lead to unity but would lead to a lot of division. If the leadership in a church leads that church to remove someone from its membership, wouldn't that cause conflict? Wouldn't that cause fights? Wouldn't that cause problems, we might think? Should churches really be run that way? Well, it can cause problems if it's not done rightly, if it's not done according to Scripture. But it can also promote unity if it's done wisely. This is why I don't just say leaders promote unity, but wise leaders. Wise leaders promote a holy unity by removing unbelievers... Or we could say people who are living in unrepentant sin and, and, um, and showing themselves likely to be unbelievers and by resolving disputes between believers. Let me read um, from chapter 5 in, in verse 1 and you'll start to see this. Paul writes this in chapter 5 verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not 
tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Now, our modern sensibilities as we read that text and we hear it, at first blushes to think that seems rather harsh of Paul. But we do need to take account for the seriousness of the offense that has been committed. Paul was very clear. This is not someone who's stumbled in, a, in, a, in an ordinary way. This is not someone who's, um, uh, who's repentant of his sin. This is someone who is fully committed to living a life that is, that is clearly in contradiction to the word of the Lord. It's something that even pagans don't do, that even pagans know is shameful. And yet, this man is a part of the church. So Paul calls upon the church to remove this man from their membership, to remove him from the church. He says, go back to verse 4, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus. Here I think there's an echo of what Jesus himself taught in Matthew 18. When he said, where two or three are gathered, there I am with you. There I am in your midst. He said that in the context of church discipline, of teaching his disciples what to do with someone who refuses to repent of his sin. Here Paul is not saying that any person who ever sins can't really be a Christian. Of course, we know that's not true. That's uh, not true in our lives, and it wasn't true in the lives of the Corinthians or any other church since that time. But a person who lives in unrepentant sin especially when we consider the seriousness of this particular man's sin, that person, he may bear the name of brother, as Paul uses that language, but he's not showing himself to really be a brother or sister in Christ. So that person needs to be removed. That's what church discipline is. It's dealing with someone who refuses to repent of his sin and removing that person from the church membership. It doesn't mean that you do anything very cruel or terrible to that person. Uh, you essentially, from the world's perspective, just remove that person's name from a list. But from the perspective of heaven, it is a serious thing. That person is removed from the church, and you can see that seriousness of it 
in the language that Paul uses. What are they to do? To deliver his body over to the power of Satan, Paul says. For the destruction of the flesh, for the purpose, this is done in love, so that the spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, the idea is to, is to, to, to remove him from the church and to hand him over to Satan for the, to, to be disciplined, ultimately under the Lord's sovereignty, that that man might come under some sort of discipline through the Lord's doing, and so that he might see the error of his ways, and so repent, and so be restored, and so be saved. Again, we look at that and say, from our modern sensibilities, how can that promote unity? And this is how. It promotes the unity, that, that, that broader unity that we really need. It promotes the unity uh, that, uh, be, between us and all of God's churches in every place. As we pursue right doctrine, we also pursue a life of holiness, a life of Christ-likeness. And we can't do that if we tolerate something like this in our midst. The Corinthians could not do that while they were tolerating this man's behavior in their church. As Paul says, a little leaven leavens that whole lump. So too, tolerating this kind of behavior in their midst was going to destroy that church. So Paul called upon them to wisely promote unity by removing those who aren't really part of God's family or showing themselves not to be in the hope that that person might later show himself to be truly repentant and truly a child of God. But there are other things that arise in the church. You could, we'll see this in chapter 6. Let's read there from beginning in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law, to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Paul is confronting another serious issue in this church that we've mentioned already. Namely, people are suing one another. People are taking their cases against one another to the courts. And they're going before people who aren't believers, who don't have any standing within the church, Paul describes them as. They don't have any, any um, ability to actually make any kind of uh, decision within the church, much less to uh, influence them. And yet, they're entrusting these problems to those individuals rather than resolving them in love and with grace and, 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 and with humility within the church. And Paul wonders, do you really not have someone who, ha who has the wisdom to know what is right and what is wrong, how to determine what is the just outcome in any dispute? In fact, it, it's, it's so striking to Paul that he'd say, I, I would rather suffer wrong. I would rather endure the wrong then go to the court. You've already lost. You've already lost if you're willing to do this. You see, what ought to be the, the case, rather, in the church is that there are people who are wise and who are leaders in the church and are able to lead people to resolve their disputes with one another in a way that is in accord with God's word. 
in a way that is gracious, in a way that is kind. You see, Paul, the implication of this is that there ought to be wise leaders in the church, and they ought to be recognized. There are many, many disputes throughout the ages about how a church should be organized, how a church should be structured. You have everything from uh, almost a completely democratic uh, governance where the congregation does everything whatsoever, all the way to something where you have uh, complete control by uh, a few or even a single individual within a church. But what we see uh, presented in the New Testament is that a church ought to be ordered with elders or pastors. I understand elders and pastors that to be the same office. Those who pastor the church by teaching and, and preaching the word of God, uh, they are to lead the church. They are to lead the church to make wise decisions. And um, there should be, uh, ultimately, it's, it's best to have more than one. There should be a plurality of elders. We'll come to that discussion in a later letter of Paul's. But there should be elders, and then there should be appointed deacons whose particular responsibility is serving the physical needs of the church. And then the congregation also has a role. There are things that must come before the congregation. We saw in chapter 5 this issue of church discipline. An elder cannot unilaterally, no, no group of elders or single elder, should unilaterally exercise that act of church discipline. That's a congregational uh, act. The congregation must receive people into membership and must remove people from membership. If we're following the instructions of Christ in Matthew 18, if we're following the pattern that we see in the New Testament, this is the order that's set forward for us, and it's important to have this order. It's important to have people who have wisdom in that order, who know how to rightly divide the word so that they can help people to resolve some of these challenges. And it's important to submit ourselves to that order. This church in Corinth wasn't doing that. They were preferring to resolve their disputes in the courts rather than before their leaders. Paul will, make men, will, will, will speak to their leaders at the very end of this letter. He calls them to think differently, and he calls them to honor those who, are, uh, who do have the wisdom to do these things, who are leaders in the church. We'll see that at the very end. In any case, wise governance, wise leadership promotes a holy unity by removing unbelievers from the church and by resolving disputes between believers. We also see, thirdly, that ordered worship promotes unity by promoting that which serves and encourages the whole body. Ordered worship promotes unity by promoting that which serves and encourages, or we could say builds up the body of Christ. This is a primary concern of Paul's throughout this letter. As we, we saw in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 14 through 17, how we had these, uh, issue, this issue with factionalism, right off the bat, Paul addresses an issue related to Christian worship. What I mean by that is the things that we do when we're gathered together. He has that, that discussion of baptism. And what's happened in the church in Corinth is they've lost sight of the meaning of baptism. And so it seems that they're really concerned with who baptized whom. Who baptized whom? My, my father told a story uh, in a sermon once on this text where um, when he was a new believer and he was getting ready to be baptized, he was in the church pastored by John MacArthur, a rather famous pastor who you might know. And he talked about how he was so hopeful John MacArthur would come into the baptistry to baptize him. And when he got down into the water, he looked up and one of the associate pastors came down to baptize him. But many years later, he reflected on that and said, that was good for me. That was right for me. Because the point was, it doesn't matter who baptizes you. It matters whom you're baptized into. 
They'd lost sight of that, and so they've corrupted this practice in Christian worship, baptizing new believers. And they've turned it into something that promoted disunity uh, by, by, by becoming a source of pride. Oh, I'm I was baptized by Paul, and Paul says, I'm thankful that I only baptized a handful of you. I don't even remember. If I, maybe I baptized some more of you. I don't remember. It's like, it's not that important. Who baptized you? And we'll see that again then in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. Their worship here has been, uh, become disordered, has become corrupted. Look in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. Here Paul will speak about the other ordinance that has been given to the church in our worship. What we practiced uh, together this morning when we participated in the Lord's Supper. We took a, um, a little bit of bread, a little cracker, and a little bit of uh, juice uh, to, to commemorate and to remember what Christ has done for us. But that's not what they were doing here in Corinth. Listen to what Paul says. In the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. We see it again. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Notice how Paul describes what they're doing. They're, they're, those who come in early are eating the Lord's Supper as if it's meant to be a feast, a, a, a meal. They're, they're getting drunk, Paul even says. He says, this is not the Lord's Supper you're taking. And he says, in doing what you're doing, you're hating the church. You're despising the church. The church of God, you're humiliating those who are poor, those who have nothing. And that's then where, what flows into this text that we read so many Sundays when we participate in the Lord's Supper as Paul lays out again for them the proper practice of the Lord's table. They've lost sight of the meaning of it. They've turned it into something else. So Paul reminds them of the meaning of the Lord's Supper. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so just as baptism is not about who baptizes you, but about whom you're baptized into, so too the Lord's Supper is not about what you eat, but who you're remembering as you eat and drink. Whoever therefore eats the bread, Paul goes on to say, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. It's amazing what Paul says next. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, 
It will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Paul wants them to restore a proper practice of the Lord's Supper, just as he wants them to recover the meaning of baptism in their worship. This will promote unity if they do it rightly, because it will unite them in their devotion to Christ, not divide them in their selfishness in these practices. As he speaks about the Lord's discipline of them, he speaks about it as a loving discipline. Their practice is wrong. They're not eating as a remembrance of Christ, and so the Lord has brought some discipline on them to refine them, to shape them, to turn them back in the way that they should go. We're reminded also that the Lord disciplines the one he loves like a father disciplines his son. We also see then the seriousness of this. How, just as uh, these other issues about church order in terms of the leadership are very serious, we see here the seriousness of right and ordered worship, which promotes unity. Paul deals with this in other ways as well. I won't go through every single one of them, but some of the other things that we see are uh, uh, a, a disunity that arises because of spiritual gifts. It seems that the Corinthians had a great many spiritual gifts. There were people who prophesied. There were people who could speak in tongues. These are gifts that we don't see in our day, in our church, uh, so much, but they, they, they were very common in the first century. And um, yet people were using them, these gifts to exalt themselves. They weren't using them to encourage uh, one another and to build up the church. You know that famous passage, 1 Corinthians 13, that passage about love? Love is patient, love is kind. We read this at, 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 and hear this at weddings. Paul's not talking about marriage. Paul's talking about how we should treat one another in the church. And he sets forward love in opposition to other spiritual gifts. The Corinthians earnestly desired these gifts like prophecy and speaking in tongues. That's why Paul says at the end of Chapter 12, I will show you a still more excellent way. The excellent way is what? The way of love. The way of love, because love is what builds up the church. And so when you read that whole passage about what love is, you come to the end and you find that love is better than all these other gifts that they might have. Verse 8 of chapter 13, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Those gifts are coming to an end, but love never ends. The way of love is better, Paul says. And so in chapter 14, his very first words are what? Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. It's not wrong to desire those gifts, but pursue love. That's the pursuit that you're to strive for. And in verse 12, he'll say, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, what do you do? Strive to excel in building up the church. You want to see a manifestation of the Spirit? Here's an example where you can put your love into action. Strive to build up the church. This is what Paul taught in all the churches. It was a thing that he received from the Lord. He'll say that at the very end of chapter 14. It concerned ordered worship, which had become disordered because of the way in which they were uh, uh, carrying out their various giftings of prophecies and speaking in tongues. For example, um, people who had the gift of tongues could, would speak in unintelligible words, but no one was there to interpret. So what good was it for anyone? Paul, Paul would say, I would rather speak five words with my mind in the gathered congregation than 
uh, you know, a, a long, long monologue in tongues. Because those five words will do far more to build up the church. Do you see this idea? Ordered worship promotes the unity of the church by building up the church. And finally, as we've already started to see in 1 Corinthians 13, humility and love promote unity in the church as believers prioritize the needs and the desires of others more than their own. We go all the way back to chapter 1 and we see how Paul uh, shows that boasting is not consistent with the gospel of Christ. In verse 26 of chapter 1, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. These people are boasting in who their favorite teacher is, who their favorite apostle is. Paul would rather have them boast in the Lord, but definitely not in themselves, to embrace a life of humility. And so then, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 13, to embrace a life of love that promotes what is good for others, that endures, that bears all things, that believes all things, that kind of love that prioritizes what is best for others, that is directed towards our Lord and faith, not the kind of selfishness that is only love for oneself. These things promote unity in the church. What does this mean then for us as a church? What can we learn from the church in Corinth through this very brief and, and, um, and uh, uh, cursory, in some ways, overview of this letter? First, let me give you three things that we can learn from the church in Corinth and put it into, kind of, into words that uh, would make more sense for us. The first thing is that membership matters but it must be rightly understood. Membership matters, but it must be rightly understood. I did not read uh, chapter 12, but chapter 12 has this beautiful passage in, in from verse 12 to the end where Paul describes the church as the body of Christ and describes each individual member of the church as members in a body. Now, when we think of membership in a church, sometimes we think of it like a club or a service organization. I've said this before. One might join the Lions Club or the Rotary Club. One might join a bowling league, and we think, well, how is joining a church any different? Am I not just joining a club? But that's not what membership is in the church. Rather, the way in which Paul uh, sets it forward before the Corinthians is like, he uses a couple of different metaphors. On the one hand, we're like physical members in a body. And this helps also to understand the different things that we do. There are hands. There are feet, there are eyes, there are ears, and so on and so forth. And one of the problems in the Corinthian church is that people who are, let's say, analogous to an eye, don't think that the, um, those who would be analogous to hands have anything to give the church, and vice versa. And Paul's saying if the, if the whole body was one big eye, it'd be a really strange body. It's not really a body. The body is not just a whole bunch of eyes brought together, but it's a whole uh, it's, it's a whole collection of different bodily members that all function together for, to, to serve one another. 
And we ought to be like that. That's what church membership is. It's supposed to be like. In fact, we're members of the body of Christ. He also likens the church in chapter 3, verse 10 through 17, to a holy temple. A holy temple that's being built up in the Lord. That's founded upon Jesus Christ. You see that unifying, um, that unifying reality for the church? All of our worship is rightly ordered when it's centered upon Jesus Christ, when it's focused upon Him. So too we as a church are rightly ordered when we are founded upon Jesus Christ and built up together as a holy temple in which God dwells. That's what Paul compares the church to in chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. That's very different than the picture that you would have when you think of being a member of a softball team or something like that today, something that you have a lot of freedom to join or to, uh, to leave. If you don't like it anymore, you can move around from one to another. This is something a bit more fixed, a bit more significant, something that requires and calls for something of us as God has gifted us to use our abilities to serve one another and to promote the health of the body. In 21st century America, we don't tend to think of church membership like this, but that's what it ought to look like. It's not just some optional membership in a club, but it's something that we should value and that we should seek. In, in, in future weeks, we'll have more time to explore this idea of what constitutes a right church membership. But at the very least, whatever it is in practice ought to reflect what we see in texts like this, not what we understand it to be from the world in which we live. Second, as I've said before, we ought to remember that just as doctrine mattered in Corinth, Doctrine matters for us, but not according to the skill and style of the preacher, but according to the truth and the importance of the teaching. Here we need to learn how to discern truth from error, not by appealing to individuals saying, well, so-and-so taught this and he's my favorite preacher and so I trust him in everything, but rather by learning to appeal to the gospel of Christ as it's set forward in God's word. That's what should unite us. We need to be able to discern truth from error. But we also need to learn to prioritize doctrine, not according to our whims, but according to the example of Christ and his apostles. Look back at chapter 8. I think that this, this is one of the most striking examples in 1 Corinthians and in all of Scripture. I mentioned this earlier, but let me actually read the text in 1 Corinthians 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, this is what's amazing to me, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. 
the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. Your sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Doctrine matters, but it's, it's amazing to me that the thing that Paul prioritizes in this passage is not the recognition that there is only one God in our knowledge, but rather the recognition that there is only one God in our love, in our character. That we love one another, that we love other brothers and sisters in Christ is more important than that we put them through a seminar to train them in monotheism. Right? That's amazing to me. They'll learn that, and, and, and people need to learn that too. They need to grow in this knowledge, but not apart from loving one another. And that even includes sacrificing our own freedom for the sake of our brothers in Christ. We need to learn this kind of prioritization in our own life and our own doctrine because we do realize we do not all agree. Not all churches agree, and even in, our, in this church, we do not all agree, and we need to be able to figure out when is it appropriate to have, uh, to have disagreements and yet hold fast together in unity and love. And on what things must we absolutely insist and say this is non-negotiable? Paul in Corinthians holds forth the gospel, holds forth the resurrection as beliefs that are non-negotiable. He's not saying that monotheism is non-negotiable, but he's saying we can give people time to grow and mature. We don't need to press this quite as quickly and as hard as every other thing. And that's an example of Paul using his wisdom to prioritize what most matters. Finally, order matters, but not according to our sensibilities but according to the order that is set forward in Scripture and by our Lord. Order matters. There are things that we do when we gather in our worship. We read God's Word. We hear the Word preached. We teach God's Word. We sing. We pray together. We baptize and we partake in the Lord's Supper. This is what we do. We don't really add a whole lot to this. Hopefully we don't add anything to that. We can do that. We have freedom to do that in various ways. But that is the sum and substance of what we do together. Very often in the modern church, we are tempted to say, well, let's introduce some kind of newfangled thing, some new fad that will get people uh, into the church and will, uh, you know, that's some novelty that might excite people. Maybe let's invite some famous athletes to come and, and, um, and uh, give a talk that's uh, something like a motivational speech or something. This kind of thing happens in, in, in very large churches. That's not part of the order of worship that God has given us. It's not the thing that we should practice. It's not the thing that really promotes unity within the church. These simple things that we do week in and week out. We read, we preach, we teach God's word. We sing and we pray together. We baptize and we partake of the Lord's Supper. That order is important and it promotes unity and it should be our priority when we are gathered together. And Church governance matters. We're not free to just order ourselves in terms of a church governance in any way we please. Some churches would say, that's, that's up for grabs. We're free to do whatever we want. That's not what I see here in the New Testament. It'll become much clearer, so I won't, uh, I won't press in on this issue. It'll become much clearer in later letters, like the pastoral epistles which Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus. But at the very least, we can say that it's important that we are governed uh, we are organized according to 
the, the biblical model of, in Scripture. Let me give you a particular text at the very end of this letter that gives you that point. In chapter 16, Paul writes this. Now I urge, in verse 15 of chapter 16, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. These people were mature believers. They were capable teachers. Paul called upon the Corinthian church to honor them, to respect their leadership, and to be willingly subject to them because they were able to wisely lead that church. And we should also embrace that kind of thing in our life as well. We don't have a manual of worship or order in the New Testament, but we can discern the will of the Lord for our life together from Scripture. Our practices will certainly run afoul of our culture's expectations, but we need to acknowledge and submit to our Lord's teaching not to what our culture tells us is right. Our culture is not our Lord. Christ is our Lord. When we look at this letter to the Corinthians, we begin to see that Paul is seeking to unite this church by calling them to, very simply, honor the Lordship of Christ in their life together. So that call is placed upon us as well. It's in Him that we are united. It's to Him that we all look. Therefore, we must be united under his lordship. And we will, as we prioritize membership together in unity, as we prioritize right teaching that promotes the gospel of Jesus Christ, and as we prioritize right order in our worship and in the organization of our church together. That's how we together corporately can submit to the lordship of Christ. Let's close. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instructions that you gave to these believers so many years ago, to this church who dealt with division and disunity, because it's so beneficial for us and for our instruction as well. Though we are thankful, Lord, that we are not um, uh, divided in quite the same way, that we don't experience all of these things that were, uh, must have been so pr trying and pressing in Corinth, Nevertheless, we are all prone to promote our own interest at the expense of others. We are all, in our own way, tempted to uh, center our life and our thoughts upon ourselves. We all need these kinds of reminders. The importance of humility, the importance of love, the importance of uh, trusting you and following your plan for your church, who is the bride of Christ, which is his body. May we honor this, O oh Lord, together as we seek to live up to this great and magnificent calling as the body of Christ. May we do it by loving one another and seeking, above all things, to build up your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.